two and two and one. Oh, shucks, I can't dance. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro, and with me is my co-host, Derek Alton, and we're at the 2022 Code for America conference in Arlington, Virginia. And this is a quick dispatch of Stories from the Open Gov, as we are joined by Jessica Cole, the CEO and co-founder at the U.S. Digital Response. Let's give her a big warm welcome. Yeah, hello. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) So, Jessica, I want to ask you, in terms of building together forward, how can large government institutions work with civic tech? Mm, This is a good question. (laughs) So, at USDR, one of the things that we have noticed is that a lot of governments are wary of being vulnerable and actually sharing with their community where they need help. It is really, really common that governments traditionally have only been penalized for having moments of vulnerability where they say, our community's needs are moving faster than we are equipped to keep up. And one of the major changes that we're starting to see that I think is actually really healthy is we're instead starting to reward public servants who are looking into the future, looking at their communities, saying, I'm being asked to do something new. I want to get it right. I'm going to announce that I don't have all of the answers and I'm going to solicit help. And we saw this with COVID because government was being asked to deliver new services or lines of service than they had in the U.S. We saw this with the federal funding um, and new requirements um, under things like the emergency rental assistance program, where government had to very, very rapidly create programs that didn't exist yesterday, which means they can't possibly know how to do it yet. Um, And we also saw it because there's a more mature civic tech sector than there has been in the past. So there are people who want to help. So at USDR in particular, we're a nonprofit. Uh, We basically are the connective tissue between the governments who ask for help. We describe ourselves as like a bat phone. They can call us. We we're, get we're on the phone with them. We need, we need this. We're we need, non-conflicted. Yeah, yeah. They can yeah. be super honest. We have a, a, a team that is part government experts and part tech experts. So they can be super honest about what they need help for with. We'll suss out what they need, and then we'll pair them with pro bono free uh, technologists who are volunteering their time or who are on our staff um, who will be surge capacity to help get it done. And then we'll reuse those solutions over and over. Interesting. Interesting. So what do you mean by reuse those solutions over and over? Like open source? Yeah. So I used to work in local government. One of the things that I think is the best about the public sector versus the private sector is the public sector gets to be collaborative instead of competitive. If you find something that works, then you want everyone else to pick it up and use it. It's actually a huge win for you if you did something creative that then got picked up in a lot of other places. The challenge in the gap is there's no one who's incentivized to go and spread that solution. If you came up with a uh, phenomenal way of doing rental assistance, as an example, we worked with the city of Memphis and Shelby County, they're not incentivized to spend their time for their uh, residents calling up all of the other counties that could maybe benefit. 
But organizations like USDR, Code for America, nonprofits, people like yourselves who go and tell stories about what's happening on the ground, we are the people who can actually then take both the technology at times that's open sourced or that's almost like a recipe of low or no code tools um, and the people power that's needed to go redeploy it elsewhere and we can go off and we can respread it. So that's a lot of the work that we do is we help in the one-off situations and then when we see patterns we are able to actually bring that learning and customize it to the next place and the next place and the next place. I have to chime in here for a moment because I totally agree with everything you're saying and I have to mention the city of Toronto real fast mm. because a few years ago they undertook the creation of a brand new open data master plan and it was one of the few communities or municipalities I should say that actually saw their role because there was a lot of open source evangelists within the culture of the city that says, no, it's our job at the city of Toronto to create the tools for the smaller municipalities around Ontario and open source it because we have the budget. So like this, a smaller community could take what we've created, the code, not just the code, but the process, the methodology, they put everything online. And that kind of leadership within government is amazing when you see it happen. Well, it's not just leadership, it's vulnerability. I mean, it's one of the things you talked about earlier. Yeah. It's, it's, when you put yourself out there, you put yourself up there to critique. And when you're in government, you get critiqued a lot. There's mm -hmm. a lot of people who are waiting for you to fail. And so it's really, it's rare when you have a government that is that vulnerable. Um, and so it's one of the things that I guess I'm, I'm interested in is like, how do you create space for that vulnerability in the work that you guys are doing and, and trying to help make government feel safer to reach out, to be vulnerable, uh, and to ask for help? Well, first of all, that story about Ontario is a great one. Um, and I have seen actually so many examples come out of Canadian civic tech in particular. There's been so much writing in the open. Uh, there's been so much work in the open and shared knowledge. We've been on the phone with our counterparts there um, many times over, actually, and incredibly grateful for it. So I'm so glad you shared that. On the vulnerability side, I think there are a couple ground rules um, that, that build trust right off the bat. So one, uh, we actually have everyone involved at USDR sign a volunteer oath. That is basically the way that we're going to conduct ourselves. And a lot of it is around humility, around assuming that the partner who's coming to us, they are the heroes. They know their community. We are not here to parachute in with any of the answers. What we are here to do is actually listen to the learned and lived experience of the people in communities who are going to tell us what they need. We might interrogate it and help brainstorm other ways we can come at it. But functionally, we're trying to work with the tools they have that they can sustain um, and then follow their lead in getting it done. Um, so, so I would say kind of like the kind of ground rules and norms that you set up a community to have can have a big difference. Another one is there is a lot of trust that gets built in being willing to keep things confidential or protected for a little while. And we do have a norm where if a government comes to work with us, we can repurpose the learnings and what we built for other places, but we will never share exactly who we worked with without their permission because we want to create that kind of safe space for them to be able to make those asks and have those moments together. And then the last thing that I think is really big is it's the way you tell those stories on the back end. Do you tell the stories of oh my gosh, someone came to us and everything was so broken. You wouldn't believe how broken it was. It was just hilariously broken. No, we don't tell the story that way. You know, we tell the story of 
they were confronted with a really, really gnarly problem, and they were tremendously hardworking and smart. I love that you bring in 80s smart. words. But you know what I mean? Yeah. Like this is this is. My dad has a saying that I think about all the time. Where um, when we were little, and we would kind of say we wanted to live big lives or do do, um, we'd kind of point at uh, lifestyles we wanted to have or whatever the case may be. And he said, if you want to live that life, or if you want to to have that kind of a claim you better solve really hard problems. And I love that. I would like to see more of that, of us basically elevating people because they are choosing to run at the really hard problems instead of shying away just because they've never been done before. It's on, that's, that's the saying my dad always used to tell me, which is, it's only impossible because no one's done it yet. Mm-hmm. Right? But uh, I want to go back to something you mentioned in terms of humility. You, you, you talked about vulnerability within the public service, but Vulnerability comes along with it risk. I'd like you to talk about maybe perhaps bringing a more humble attitude within government because government often presents itself as the elder statesman, a very patriarchal type of establishment. We know everything. We're always perfect. And that's why it takes us five years to create something because we have to be perfect because the media is going to get on our case or the political animals will get on our case if we're not perfect. I'd like for you to talk about how maybe a humble approach, saying we don't have the answers, right, from government, so we're going out, we're asking for help. How do you think, what do we think would be the response if a government agency were to take that approach, which is, we don't know, we're not perfect. This gets to the future that I'd like to see, which is I would like to see government retell its own story as we are adaptive. We we adapt because our whole job is to keep up with the needs of our community. And so what that helps to do in terms of humility is say the needs are changing. It doesn't mean that we wouldn't have gotten it right about the needs that we knew of yesterday, but it does mean we've gotten new information that has really changed what our community requires of us or requires about the way that we deliver or cater to them. Um, And this is where I actually see digital coming into play. This to me is what public interest tech, civic tech really has become, is a way to make sure that the public sector is able to keep up. And that means you are doing the user research, the usability testing, the human-centered design to know what those needs are to begin with. It means that you have the technology tools and practices to build the kind of adaptive, flexible systems uh, that will keep up with those needs and scale and shrink uh, accordingly. And it also means that you're building in kind of a collaborative, more modular way so that as you need to add components, take away components, collaborate here, um, not cooperate there, like you can actually change. And that's what I would like to see us do a lot more of. I guess... A question, sort of talking about this this future, because we started talking about like this future we want to go. How do you see in this future, like the different sectors, you know, private sector, government, civic tech, small and medium enterprises. How do you see those things come, those groups coming together and building this common path forward to this future, particularly when there are such different incentives that drive these different spaces? Well. The first thing we have to do is basically recognize that government, while it's its own sector, functionally it's all encompassing. Like, government is the thing, it's the project that we embark on together as people. Uh, And I bet that that's something that's shared by 
both of you sitting at this table and probably by most of the people who listen and care about a podcast like this. Um, and so that means that we are not just kind of side by side. It's actually, this is the umbrella project that we are all working towards. And what I would like to see is to see all of the sectors funnel in, up to making sure that this shared experiment is actually a success. Um, and so a couple of things that I think uh, could really get us there. One, uh, we need to be able to allow for talent to more porously move and contribute to public ends, regardless of where they sit. So we are doing a lot of collaboration with other organizations around this concept of tech in service and civic leave. Um, uh, basically like letting people uh, do pro bono work as a technologist for the public good, even if they're sitting for it's their full-time like job a, like elsewhere. A, a, the civic leave, it's like essentially a maternity leave, so you're still getting your salary, but it's for a civic end, a yeah. civic tag purpose or something. How, how, how's that received? So actually it's been, the interest is enormous. So to give interest you- Interest from who? Well, from, from the technologists, first of all, yeah. and from the, the people who could receive it, we've seen a lot of different models that cor corporations, companies are starting to latch onto. So some of them are just allowing for more volunteer time, um, but like volunteer time off. So it effectively is subsidized time that people can then contribute. Um, we're seeing some like Google.org and Microsoft and others who are actually lending teams, lending fellows for longer periods of time. And then now we're really starting to um, use the term secondment, which is basically a fancy way of, of saying, yeah, you, you loan your talent out to a public end who might be paid by the company or by the public entity, but they have the security of knowing that they can come on back. Because I think people are recognizing that there's, there's a, a double bottom line there. There's like a deep value for the person who's doing that work, and there is deep value for the company and for the hosting organization for getting access to that talent. Well, I have, a, I have a question. In some ways, it's a question for you as well, Richard, because this ties into a debate that Richard and I have had many times around, so these are sort of short-term stints, short-term relationships. And I know, Richard, one of your issues you see with government oftentimes is that that's one of the problems is that people keep moving. You don't have the opportunity for long-term relationships that then build trust, but then that then build uh, institutional memory, that then build uh, capacity for the large systemic changes that we push for. So that's the, the one argument is like, yes, these are nimble, you can bring people in, that's exciting, but you, how do you balance that with the need for relationships, the need for trust, the need to sometimes go slow? Um, oh, I am so glad you asked this question. I have been a fellow at multiple organizations, including Code for America, and so I feel like I've seen it from a lot of different angles, and one of the things that I was scared about with the USDR was that's the fail... That's the failure mode. The failure mode is that we surge in a bunch of outside volunteers, experts, whomever, and government never invests in having that capacity for itself because it can always borrow from the outside. Yeah. So here's the other way of seeing it that I think we're trying to get at. Um, it's the Iron Man suit or the Iron Woman suit or the Iron Person suit, which is basically you take someone on the inside who's trying so hard to do the work from where they're sitting and they know their org and they are already in the seat, um, you are not trying to be them, right? They and their team are the local experts, but they do recognize that they need to be able to make the case um, and to, uh, for future investment in their team and their capacity and their ability to do this over the next five to 10 years. 
So they basically put out the call to us to say, hey, we know we'd like to do this differently. Can you give us the Iron Man suit for a couple of weeks? And we give them all the gear, and by gear I just mean the, the skill sets that they need in terms of a surge of technical talent or expertise. Um, and they go and do the project and so show what it looks like to do this project for the public with all of the skills and possibilities of the suit. Well, how public sector budgeting works you usually are budgeting about nine months to a year to sometimes two years before you're actually able to get access to that fund. Same thing with hiring. You know, you're doing these things months in advance. So think of it almost like uh, um, that Iron Man is then making the case for the budget requests that are going to be made for the hires that will replace the suit so that the suit becomes internal. So we are actually kind of like jump starting the capacity building on the inside. Uh, and we've seen that uh, happen. So in New, in New York City, the mayor's office of the CTO, their team, phenomenal team, we did three rounds of an NYCX Innovation Fellowship where we had 30 fellows who came in, volunteered 20 plus hours a week, 10 weeks at a time. Um, huge program, hugely uh, meaningful and impactful work. They have now converted that. Rather than doing that forever, they are now creating a New York City digital core um, that they are running and a New York digital service team where they've gotten an expansion in the total number of heads that they can hire because they were able to make the case through having this borrowed talent to show what was possible. So I guess a follow-up question I have for that is how do you navigate the culture clash that can, can sometimes happen? Because one of the reasons why government's reaching out to you is because they don't have the capacity, the skill sets, the processes in place. So you're coming in with a whole new set of skill sets, processes, ways of doing things that are different than how government does. But now that has to happen under a common roof or like, how do you, how do you manage that culture clash and, and move that forward? First of all, I'll just say, we all need to have a bit of grace around this because we talk about making sure that governments feel comfortable being vulnerable and failing. We need to make sure that sometimes these attempts, we can be vulnerable and fail, uh, which isn't to say we haven't figured it out. I think we've figured out some really good learnings, but I do expect fully that sometimes in we've done at this point um, 300 of these projects. Some of them are we're going to learn. Um, but in this case, the, the things that we've basically seen are you find the people who under, in the inside who understand the power of digital tools and practices, and they act as a bit of the host um, for the work. Yeah. And okay. you use them as your kind of ambassador host to work them through the rest of the organization. You empower them, you raise them up, um, and then that's your launch pad to the rest. It's really interesting. You're sort of you know creating business cases through a back channel kind of way. I think that was the very first time you used, like we're the back phone as yeah. opposed to the bat phone. So it's pretty fascinating what you guys are doing out there. And uh, it's, you know, keep up the great work. It sounds as though it's working. <laughs> Thank you. You help the helpers. That's the, you know, I think that's what we're all yeah, in it for, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 So uh, we do have to wrap up this conversation. Jessica, uh, it's been tremendous. Uh, tell the fine people where they can find you. Thank you so much for hosting us and me. Uh, they can find us at usdigitalresponse.org. And you can also reach out directly. My name's Jessica, um, and I'd be happy to hear from any and all of you. All right. Do you have any last words before we close this out, Derek? Uh, just excited to hear that you guys exist and, and looking forward to getting to know you guys better and exploring how we can help expand this work that's happening, not just in the United States, but bring it to Canada and around the world. Back at you. <laughs> Great stuff. 
All right, so this is where things end. I want to thank everyone for listening. And as usual, uh, please leave a rating or a comment. Share with your friends and families. Like it. And if there's any stories or any guests you'd like for us to, uh, to record or feature, please let me and Derek know and we'll gladly do it. So until next time, let's make it open.